Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Matamor Cronin. And I'm Justin Clark. Today we're discussing the future of agriculture. That means we'll be discussing the global food crisis that's expected to occur as early as 2027, the problem with the way the food are currently is being produced, and possible solutions for how we could implement better agricultural practices in the future. But first, I want to talk about this global food crisis because before we started researching this topic, my own perspective was, why can't we just make more of the food? There's all this food in grocery stores, just make more. There's more people going to be born. You know, we're going to go from 7 billion people to 10 billion people by 2050. Why don't we just scale our food production accordingly? But, you know, I've, I've learned a lot in the last couple of days about why that's not as easy as it sounds. Um, Mm -hmm. So maybe we can start there and I'd love to hear your thoughts on what's the big deal. Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that goes into agriculture. Obviously, the first thing we need is land. Land Mm -hmm. is going to be the the ultimate like resource that we have. And then on that land, we need really good soil to produce Mm -hmm. good crops. The problem is we don't have unlimited land. And with the population growths that are expected, I mean, what, like a 25% increase in population in the next couple decades? Yeah. Like it's, or maybe even the next decade. And and we're already using so much of the land. Like, I think I saw one stat that said that the amount of cropland is about the size of South, South America. And the amount of pasture land, like where livestock are raised, is about the size of Africa. So we're already using a planet's worth of land to produce the crops that are needed today. And when you think, okay, well, why don't we just move on to other farmland in Canada or Russia or some you know, other areas? The problem is that that goes hand in hand with deforestation and destroying mm-hmm. the biodiversity in those areas which then exacerbates climate change, which makes the food crisis worse. And it's like, there are all of these things feeding into this problem. It's, I mean, it's just a vicious cycle. And, and one of the other things to just touch on climate change a little bit more, we don't have as predictable and we won't have as predictable of a climate, which means Mm -hmm. all of these farmland areas when they're producing what I think, so I saw an article in Time that said 12 crops produce 75% of all human calories. Mm-hmm. 12 crops. That's no genetic diversity. Right. If, there's, if there's one of those crops that fail or a couple that fail because of pesticide resistance or something or um, herbicides become – or sorry – weeds become resistant to herbicides and pests become resistance to pesticides. Yeah. And then there's diseases that are spread in these 12 crops. And, and it's not even just like the fact that it's only 12 crops. It's that within those crops, like let's take soybeans as an example. There is only one single strain of soybean accounts for 90% of all soybean in America. And this strain of soybean is patented by Monsanto. And oh other farmers are not allowed to even save some of their seed from the previous harvest as sort of a hedge against future, uh, you know, conditions. So mm-hmm. it's not just the lack of number of crops. It's the lack of diversity within each individual crop. Yeah, I mean, 
the I mean evolution is totally dependent on genetic diversity within species and if we can't have these crops evolve naturally in a way that makes them more resistant to climate issues or anything else then we're going to have some serious problems the other mm. thing that we've seen is a problem with B colony collapse syndrome so we've had a huge decline in, decline in bees in the past couple decades and those are the key pollinators so like when we're seeing uh, pests and bees and everything else declining that's like the very beginning of the food chain and mm -hmm. we're disrupting that and when we're disrupting a biological system that's been in place for millennia that's that doesn't spell a very good future right yeah, and we've talked about some of the symptoms of the problem, but I think it's good to just give a high level of what, how we've gotten here in the first place. And really, as, as a marketer, I always think about what are we optimizing for? And with American agriculture especially, and with global agriculture as well, we're optimizing for bigger, faster, cheaper, and we're not optimizing for sustainability, nutrient density so mm -hmm. everything that's being optimized and when you think about historically how this happened a lot of this started to occur after world war ii when we got into this factory mindset and mcdonald's was also a big player in this where previously you would have restaurants that were all served by different local farms and it was more of like an art being a chef and you did a lot of different things but once companies like McDonald's came around, it became very systematized where each person just does the same motion over and over again. You put the buns in the patties and that's it. That's the only thing you do all day long. And that same practice started to go into how we actually create the food. So whereas in like the early 1950s, being a, working at a meatpacking plant was actually a pretty respectable job. It was like up there with being an auto worker. But now... It's a horrible job. It's like you're doing cutting the same pig's head just thousands of times a day. And it's actually one of the most dangerous jobs as well. But this whole factorization, like making everything into a factory where it's all just about like the monoculture, you're just producing as much of this one product as you possibly can. And you're trying mm -hmm. to make it as big and as cheap and produce it as quickly as you possibly can. That's how we've gotten to this place. And yeah. that's why we're digging our own grave to an extent. And you sort of touched on this about this loss of, of fertility of soil. But any farmer knows you have to return fertility to the soil because over the years, you're going to strip out all of the nutrients from that soil if you don't have a natural way to replenish the, the nutrients and the land is going to be totally ruined. And then when you ruin that land, you're going to have to move on to some other land and this is just this like cycle that keeps happening where we're destroying the land we have and then we have to deforest new area and we're just eating mm -hmm. away at our planet. Yeah, I mean, one of the big things in current like big agriculture practices is something called tilling, where you basically right. disrupt the soil, which can kill weeds and it, it disrupts pretty much everything. The problem is it also disrupts the earthworms. It disrupts the bacteria. It disrupts everything in the soil, which is a really big problem for soil fertility. 
And when you when you till the soil, you have this exposed layer of soil that isn't covered by any crops, mm -hmm. and then it can blow away. And then you have erosion. stuff like erosion. And when back in the 30s, we saw the Dust Bowl, mm -hmm. where we had these giant dust storms, kind of in the mid the uh, mid south of the U.S. I think in the Oklahoma yeah. Kansas area, um, because there was topsoil in farmland that was totally depleted and we had this sort of desertification of mm. farmland and this is something that can happen all the time and when we're disrupting topsoil there's going to be a point where there is no topsoil left right. and we can replenish topsoil it's it's not like it's gone forever but it takes a while to get back to the point where it's fertile soil with all of the microbes, with all of the fungi, oh, yeah. with everything. I saw one stat that said that it takes like one to two centuries just to have an inch of fertile topsoil created by Mother Nature. So it's literally yeah. taking hundreds of years to replenish this topsoil naturally. And we can replenish it ourselves much more quickly by reintroducing nitrogen and phosphorus rich material like organic and matter bugs. and bugs and bugs are and, an important part but i also found it interesting that we may hit a limit of how much nitrogen and phosphorus is available to us especially phosphorus i mean nitrogen is something that is the the most common element in the air but it's really hard to extract because the bonds are so tight of the of the n2 and so we can extract it, but it's fairly expensive. So that's one limiting factor. Another limiting factor is phosphorus, which we pretty much can only get from rocks. And interestingly, all the phosphorus rocks on planet Earth happen to be located in Morocco, more or less. Really? Yeah. So it's like just one small country like has all of the resources that are really important for growing crops with fertile soil. And so, you know, once we get into the scenarios, I want to talk about some of the geopolitical implications. But it's worth noting that there's not unlimited fertilizer. We can't just buy unlimited compost from your local market and do that across, you know, global scale. It's a very real limitation. And mm -hmm. the other thing to consider is that even if people who have higher income are able to afford you know buying these nitrogen and phosphorus rich fertilizers and having a farm that's running smoothly the lower income population is not going to be able to make it if the cost of food keeps rising and mm -hmm. the quantity and quality of food stagnates and that's what it seems like is is occurring yeah and one of the other issues that will happen especially in the lower income areas like let's say africa or india yeah. some of these some of these places are the first um the first instinct is to go to these very intensive very chemically driven agricultural practices because it's the easiest thing to do from the get-go yeah it's interesting thinking about the geopolitics of this because I've came across these really interesting charts that I can share in our social media, but it basically shows the net importer or net exporters of food in the world. And North America and Canada and South America, these areas are all producing a lot of food. So mm -hmm. we're not going to have any problems in the near future in, that, in those areas. But yeah. in other areas, like for instance, China 
40 years ago used to be a net exporter of food. Now they are in a very dire state of they import so much more food than they export that they've become heavily dependent on places like South America and like Africa. And similarly with India, India used to, India actually is like one of those cases where it used to be a net exporter, but, or sorry, it used to be a net uh, importer of food, like it was dependent on other countries. But then through the green revolution and, you know, creating genetically modified crops that have higher yields and using fertilizers and pesticides, they are now an, a net exporter. But it's still uncertain whether they'll be able to keep that up as that population grows and the, the you know middle class grows to where they start eating a greater percentage of meat. So if you just think about like these three areas in particular, India, China, and Africa, these are going to be some of the biggest players in how the whole global food crisis plays out. And it's a little scary to think like what could happen if there's a serious crisis and like China has to start making some geopolitical chess moves to secure their food future. And, you know, and they're already investing heavily into the infrastructure of Africa. And, you know, it's just, it's interesting to see, like, they're no dummies. They're, they're probably already thinking 10, mm -hmm. 12 steps ahead. And so unless we solve right. this in a way that is also good for people living in Africa and South America, then those people are probably going to get screwed. Right. Yeah. And then one of the other things about this really dependent food chain um, where we're dependent on Africa, or we're dependent on these very specific countries for food. What happens if there's a crisis in one of those countries and that supply chain is cut off? Mm -hmm. What what do we do then? This is another potential issue. Like how how resilient is our food chain really? Right. Like, one of the things I've been thinking about is what if we have some sort of decentralized food chain where yes. where we can somehow get to the point where we're growing food closer to home. And in one case, and one of the benefits of this is we're not waiting weeks for food to get to our right. door. So we, get, we can actually get to the point where all around the world people are eating fresher food. Right. And, and yeah, I mean, the average apple in an American grocery store is 11 months old. Really? I didn't yeah. know it was that old. 11 months old. And it's very similar for grain because grain is stored for a long time before it's sold typically. And by that time, when your food is almost a year old, most of the nutrients have been stripped out of it. So when you're eating an apple and you think, hey, I'm being healthy today, I'm going to eat an apple you're actually just eating some natural preserved sugar and not much else. <laughs> wow. Which is pretty awful. I didn't that old. I didn't even know they could last 11 months. Is that just because of all of the preservatives? So they, they keep these apples in these chambers that have a certain type of atmosphere that preserves them. And this atmosphere is so deadly that there are actually videos you can watch of people going in to get these apples from the storage areas and then dying afterwards because it's like so toxic, but it's basically like preserves the apple by like, I don't know exactly what type of material they're wow. using in the atmosphere, but, or there's other instances of like, for instance, tomatoes, 
they will pick the tomatoes when they're green they'll ship them across and then they'll like blast them with this certain type of of uh, material to like ripen them artificially so they like become ripened right before they enter the supermarket and they look like a tomato they taste kind of like a tomato but they have very little nutrients compared to what you would get if you just had a tomato plant like in your backyard wow Yeah, Yeah. that's that's sort of crazy. One of the things I've also been reading a lot about is uh, seasonal eating. Yeah. So so in order to have the freshest food, you just eat what's in season right now. So if you can get it from a local farmer or a local garden or something um, within the last couple of weeks, you can pretty much be guaranteed that it's fresh and in season. And that's when you have this this higher nutrient density. And, you know, it's it's one of those things that we don't think about because we're reliant on things like corn, like wheat all year round. But if we maybe in the fall, maybe we ate more sweet potatoes and in the spring, maybe we ate, you know, something more. Well, I don't really know what a a spring plant would be a big spring crop because I know. But but you raise a good point because. You know, and chefs think about this all the time. So I was watching this one chef's table episode in preparation for this. And this chef has said that American cuisine is defined by being not so great ingredients in abundance. (laughs) And that's really what American (laughs) food is. It's like a ton of food that's not that good. And that's the reason is because we have this mindset of, oh, I should be able to have you know, steak and pesto and whatever else all year round. And I don't really care how it tastes or what the nutrients are. I just want to have what I want to eat. But this chef, because he was so curious and inquisitive about how to get the best flavors possible, he started thinking about the whole agricultural industry. And he thought about how to get the best ingredients, it has to be really fresh. So it needs to be grown. And then it's like, okay, what results in really fresh, flavorful food? And so he started getting into the farming practices, the soil, using natural, you know, manure instead of fertilizers, rather than using, um, you know, chemicals or or things like that, just doing crop rotations. And pretty soon he realized that there's this whole ecosystem in an ideal farm that all works together. And you think about like, okay, you need cows, like, let's say you start with just wheat, you need cows to provide manure, so that the wheat is, is, you know, good wheat. And then Mm -hmm. the cows can also eat the grass. So then they're healthy. But then Mm -hmm. you also need, you know, the cow pies are fairly are are spread out, not in a very even way. So you need chickens to spread it out more evenly across the field. Mm -hmm. And then you need like goats because their hooves like aerate the soil from them walking around and they'll eat some things that the chickens don't eat. And then you need flowers to attract the bees to pollinate the Mm -hmm. the flowers. And pretty soon it's like this whole web of life that you've created your own little garden of Eden. And this is how you produce the best quality food. But we've gotten so far away from that where we just focus on one crop like wheat and then we bring in this fertilizer from way across the country and then you have to remove all of the dung from like the cows that you have and 
it's like none of it's working together. We're trying to do it in this very human way of thinking of things, whereas nature has already created like the perfect way to grow crops and have a farm sustainably. Yeah, I mean, the the whole world is a system and it's and we can work with this system to yeah. produce the most amount of food. Like you touch on a couple of really interesting points where you have this rotation of grazing of livestock mm-hmm. and a lot of times that's called something that's called uh, silvopasture where basically mm. you have this this early group go through so let's say you have if you're trying to raise livestock and you have 10 acres let's say you have one acre boxes within those 10 acres so on day one you let cows go into this this one acre patch and they'll eat like the top layer of this grass which mm. is the healthiest for the cows and then you'll let older cows which can eat a little bit lower on the grass and then you can like you said the chickens or the turkeys and then yeah. sheep um and you have to i've heard you have to be careful with goats because they'll eat everything literally <laughs> everything and and they like goats are some of the last remaining animals on grasslands before desertification because they'll eat wow. absolutely everything so you know, if you're a farmer listening to this, obviously you probably know this, but <laughs> be careful maybe with goats. be careful with goats. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of uh, philosophy around that whole system. Like I've heard of uh, permaculture. That's right. something I've really nerded out on recently. And instead of even just these these annual crops like wheat, like corn, even with crop rotation, really what you do is you create this layered system and you can create almost this food forest where you have seven different layers. Like you have the canopy layer, you have a little bit of a lower layer, a shrub layer, a grass layer, a vine layer. All of these different things within the same acreage can all produce different crops. So you can have a walnut tree with blackberries growing up the side of it. You can have tomato plants. You can have in the ground layer, you can have uh, potatoes like per acre this is potentially more useful um, and can produce more calories per acre than even these high yield crops because it's this layered approach it's sort of like you have vertical farming going on but it's a natural system yeah the vertical farming is is something that i really want to get involved in personally especially Mm -hmm. after researching it. I mean, there's this one company, startup company called The Bowery, which Mm -hmm. has locations in urban areas, like in Manhattan, in New York City. You can go to one of these vertical farms and it has the precise amount of water, of sunlight, the right soil fertilization. And there's just these stacks and stacks and stacks of this fresh produce being grown. And the flavor is just incredible compared to something that's like months old that has been shipped from South America. And I mean, mm-hmm. my, my wife and I even started growing our own food in our backyard. And just this morning I had some of our fresh grown lettuce and oh, it just, nice. just tastes so good. Just I don't even cook it because it's just like it just tastes so great with like a little mm-hmm. bit of like Canadian bacon and eggs and. You know, I would love to get to the point where you can everyone can just depend on food that's near where they live. So you know where your food comes from, you know when it was grown, you know how it was grown. And mm-hmm. this movement has already started. And that's what gives me a lot of hope with this topic. 
because the whole idea of farm to table is already super prevalent in like the upper echelon of, of urban areas and mm-hmm. farmers themselves are starting to realize that they can make more money if they create food that's organically grown because they can sell it at a higher price. So my hope is that we're able to extend this to the point where it's not just the you know ritzy yuppies that can afford farm-to-table food, it becomes the new norm. And when you look into the numbers, farms that are sustainable farms, like the ones we've been talking about, actually produce more food than the big monoculture farms that we're used to. It's just that they don't produce the same as much of like this one big crop as cheaply. Mm-hmm. So it's it, we would have to change our culture and our way of life to a little bit more eating with the seasons, like you've said, and mm-hmm. not, you know, demanding pesto in February. <laughs> um, right. And if we're willing to do that, and if we're willing to, at least in the short term, pay a little bit more for a little higher quality, then the supply is going to change to meet our demands. Yeah. And this whole thing with the urban agriculture and the vertical farming solves issues we talked about earlier in the podcast with the supply chain issues where you can, uh, like in any major city, we can have these big vertical farms that are just in buildings that can grow some of the big crops right there in your hometown. And then we're not reliant on crops that are being shipped from China or Mexico or South America or Africa. And it's just one of those things that seems like a prerequisite if we really want the carrying capacity of the human race to be over 10 billion people. Yeah. Well, and it's going to, it's going to be, it's going to hit at least 10 billion. So the question is, is there going to be mass starvation when we achieve that number? Or are we going to be able to more pleasantly transition to a, Mm -hmm you know a world that's that big but is still healthy and not Mm -hmm. suffering to an incredible degree yeah the the nice thing about this too is um with the vertical farming you don't even use as much acreage either so we can we have more space for cities with to support this bigger population the one thing i wonder about though with vertical farming is the energy expenditure because it is pretty energy intensive. I mean, all that electricity has got to come from somewhere. And when you think of a more like traditional sustainable farm where you have, you know, your own little garden of Eden of crop rotation and animals and whatever, that's Mm -hmm. something that does not really require much energy at all. It's really something that just requires a love of outdoors and being able, being willing to put in a little hard work. Um, yeah. So I think that there's huge potential for vertical farming. It's just we're going to need to also consider the energy expenditures because I saw one stat that said that to produce one, like one cow being being raised is 75 gallons of gasoline that has gone into the agricultural process just mm-hmm. for each and every cow. Like that's a tremendous amount of fossil fuels that are being used in farming Mm -hmm. so and and it's hard to predict how much climate change is going to impact agriculture and disrupt agriculture 
So mm-hmm. once, you know, one of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest triggers that could trigger a worst case scenario is if they all of a sudden the price of petroleum skyrocketed for like a geopolitical reason. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden the price of food became much, much higher which would be really bad for lower income people. It would be really bad for the farmers. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't know what, what your thoughts are on the energy intensity of vertical farming and what, what might be a better solution or how to solve it. Yeah, so I think it depends on what types of crops are being grown. I think what would be a good um, way to look at this would be like, what what is the actual expenditure of the resources of certain crops in you know being grown outside and in uh, vertical farming because there are some crops especially annual crops where there's an intensive planting process an intensive harvesting process every single year that's a lot of uh, fossil fuel output even if you're growing these outside Mm-hmm. Um, and you also, there are also better ways to raise livestock like this, this livestock rotation that we were both talking about earlier is a way to preserve. So if you let cows on one little parcel and then rotate them, the parcel has time to recover. Right. But if you let them just, uh, graze indiscriminately all the time, they're just going to totally deplete the, um, the grasses and they're right. not going to have anything to eat. But if you rotate, the grasses have time to recover and it's a lot better of a situation. But I know that it's not necessarily commonplace for people to do that, but it, right. it requires more work. It's not an automated process. Like you can't just like let them roam out there, which is easy because you don't have to think about it. So there's, yeah. there are different ways to do this. And I think, I think this is such a multifaceted issue. Like we need to be at the same time solving like hundreds of variables with this right, this agriculture right. problem. But that's but why I th- have... Yeah, I mean that's why I think it's good to sort of use the way nature has developed as a model because mm-hmm. there are so many factors that go into it and I think when in doubt if you can go back to what nature had optimized for or like mm-hmm. for instance cows eat grass that's what they're meant to eat they're not meant to eat corn but that's what they're fed more than 90 percent of the time and by eating corn they develop e coli there's been all of these e coli outbreaks kids have been dying from e coli and it's proven that all you need to do is just feed a cow some grass for five days and pretty much all of their e coli is is uh, expunged from their system or you could feed them a little bit of seaweed, which we talked about on, on the future mm-hmm. of food. But that's not what the big agro-industrial complex does as a solution. They have some highly engineered solution where they literally use chemicals to basically like destroy all the bacteria on the meat after the, after like the burger has been created, rather than mm-hmm. preventing the bacteria from accumulating in the first place. It's like this messed up mentality where it's like mm-hmm. all like damage control rather than like preventing the problem in the first place just so that they can keep this like system going. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's 
maybe even started with good intentions. Like people right. want well, they want to be able to feed the entire world. Like that's probably why we see these super genetically modified strains of corn and rice coming out. Oh, but totally. I mean, the guy. It's one of those. Yeah, I mean, have you read like about the Green Revolution, like Borlaug, that guy? No, I don't think so. So, so Borlaug is the single person who basically created the whole paradigm that we exist in today, which is that he created the Green Revolution. He figured out when there was mass famine that you could genetically modify plants to make them have a much higher yield. And you could also chalk them full of fertilizers with phosphorus and, and nitrogen and have them produce way more than was previously possible. This guy ended up winning the Nobel Peace Prize because if he hadn't genetically engineered plants and, and recommended fertilizers, one billion people would have died if it weren't mm -hmm. for this man's invention. So you're totally right. Like This was made with good intentions. Yeah. But even Borlaug himself, before he died, said that this is just a temporary solution. This is not going to solve our problems long term. So now we need to start thinking about what are the solutions in place that can be long term, that can be sustainable. Yeah. I mean, one of the great things about being human is that we can kind of overcome some of the natural barriers that a lot of other species run into. Like, for mm -hmm. example, if cows run out of grass, they just die. Like there, a lot of cows right. will die. A lot of insects will die if they run out of food. They can't engineer Humans, more grass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We so we're coming. We're getting to this point where we're in such an unnatural place mm -hmm. that would never have happened evolutionarily speaking, historically, without the inventiveness of humans. That it might, you know, maybe this is getting into a worst case scenario, but it could cause some very serious problems if it collapses. Because we're, yes. this is like, if you think of the economy and when bubbles happen, like the, the dot-com boom, everything was overinflated and totally out of proportion. I feel like that's sort of where we are with agriculture right now. Where we're in this this bubble where we're just like we're trying to keep it going and it's it's like this Ponzi scheme where we're like borrowing tomorrow's food for you know or borrowing tomorrow's uh, life source for you know yeah. happiness today and I, fullness today. I completely agree. I mean, and the thing that worries me the most is that there are now legal limitations on the innovation that people can have in agriculture because of the patent laws that are allow Monsanto to own the species of life. Like, yeah. can you imagine that? You're allowing a company to say, we own this, this particular strain of soybean, a particular strain of wheat or corn or whatever. And then they, it's basically a modern form of indentured servitude where they get these farmers who haven't been able to grow their food because there's all of this like antibiotic resistance and it's become harder for the non-GMO foods to survive, especially because if your neighbor farmer has these GMO seeds and then they blow into your field as seeds tend to, then all of a sudden you're infected. And then not only that, but Monsanto will go and sue you for patent infringement because you now have some of their seeds in your field when you didn't pay them. 
And so these farmers are in this situation where they don't even oftentimes own their land. They don't own their seeds. They don't own the animals. They are in all of this debt from having to build these structures and keep them updated. And Mm -hmm. they basically have no say anymore. And it's just these like three big companies like like Tyson, Monsanto. There's like a few big companies that pretty Mm -hmm. much just own the whole agricultural business, Coke Industries too. And, yeah. and uh, that's, that's, it's like you said, it's like we're putting all our eggs in one basket or all your stock, you know, your whole stock portfolio is in like three stocks. <laughs> and if one of those stocks plummets or if all three plummet, then it's going to be catastrophic. Yeah, I mean, it's truly terrifying. And, and there's so many issues that we see with Monsanto or now, I guess, Bayer acquired Monsanto for like 60 billion in the last yeah. six months, I think, but they're they're being slapped with all of these things because they also created the pesticide Roundup or yeah. the herbicide Roundup. That I mean, there are potential issues. I know there's been a lot of people that say no, this doesn't cause cancer, but there's a lot of others that say yes, this does cause cancer, and I don't even know what to believe at this point because you have I've seen so many instances, especially with uh, Monsanto and some of these these very powerful companies where they can just sway what yes. scientists report. Well, and well, I'm, I'm worried that that's happening here. Yeah, and there are specific libel laws that protect the agriculture industry. You cannot criticize the food industry. I mean, we could we could get sued for this podcast. Like literally, the the laws are insane with how how strict it is that you can't say anything negative about any of these food companies like Oprah Winfrey for instance on her show she this was during one of the E. coli outbreaks of you know ground beef and on her show she was just talking about how terrible this is and she said something like well I won't be eating a hamburger anytime soon and she got sued by the big meat industry and it went on for years this lawsuit in the end, she had spent a million dollars of her own money, and finally she did win the lawsuit. But anyone who's not Oprah, who's not like a multimillionaire or billionaire, has just no chance going up against these companies. And so if you're like a farmer or a blogger or a reporter or whatever, and all of a sudden you get a letter in the mail from Monsanto saying that you're, you're the subject of a lawsuit, most people just back down. And so they've been able to consolidate and hold their power. And, you know, we see this stuff today where the same regulatory agencies that are supposed to regulate them are staffed by people who used to be the heads of the big agriculture industries, like the current EPA, FDA, USDA. These are all just political flunkies that are in bed with the same people they're supposed to regulate. So it's 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 so disheartening as like an American who just hopes that the government is doing something to protect us and yeah. It, 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 like so many of the problems we talk about on this podcast come back to money and politics just sort of warping yeah. the way that things were supposed to run or things that were designed the checks and balances that that were supposed mm-hmm. to be in place. Um 
But yeah. anyways, it might be good to get into the future, the worst case scenario, because we're sort yeah. of already delving into it. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. All right, Justin, what is the worst case scenario for the future of agriculture? Worst case scenario. Yeah, I mean, what you were talking about um, doesn't, it's not that far off from what I was thinking in the worst case scenario. I mean, when we have politics that are so in bed with some of these big companies and and these big companies are getting to the point where even if they started with good intentions now they're just totally being driven by profit we're we're ingrained in this system that doesn't allow us to evolve to a better system and there's i don't think there's going to be really a good way to break free from this unless a government is like, look, your stuff is illegal. And I know there are companies or there are countries around the world that are making um, Roundup illegal, for example, and probably some other things that Bayer slash Monsanto has um, created. But if we keep going down this path, we're going to see soil depleted. We're going to see so many of these issues. And one of the other things that we haven't even talked about is uh, there was a law that was just passed that basically, or not a law, but the government stopped funding um, bee tracking because, and that's right at the same time that there was a bee pesticide that Hmm. was released into the market. And it's something that's banned pretty much everywhere in the world except for the U.S. now. It was banned previously. Yeah. Yeah. And so now we're not even tracking. So it, and you know, uh, the famous saying, "What what's measured can be managed." Now we can't even right. measure. We can't even measure um, bee colonies and and their growth slash decline. Um, so that's one of the other things. Like we're there's just this this information um, blockage that we're not we're not going to be able to know what's going on. And I think we're going to get to the point where we run into this terrible food crisis that we've been kind of. Um, bouncing around this whole conversation and yeah that's pretty much what it is i I think we're going you know in the worst case that happens and we see people starving around the world we see some countries uh affected more than others right away but then eventually it's going to affect the whole world everything is connected in the world and that's what i'm like truly terrified about yeah yeah i'd have to agree I would say that in the short run, the biggest worst case disaster would be some sort of superbug, which a lot of people have already talked about being a potential result of all of this, just pumping mm-hmm. the animals full of antibiotics. And it's just so unnatural how they're growing, especially the livestock. Like chickens, for instance, compared to 50 years ago, chickens now are twice as big and yet they're grown, they're raised from egg to slaughterhouse in half the time. And because of that, their internal organs can't keep up. They can only take like three steps and then they plop down because they literally can't deal with how much mass they have on their bodies because they can sell more white meat if chickens have massive breasts. And similar things are happening with cows. Similar things are happening with veggies also and they're being contaminated by e coli like they have the iceberg lettuce um 
you know, withdrawal just recently. And I think that's one of the reasons why an outbreak is more likely because we have so much consolidation where it's just a few players that produce everything that if there is a major outbreak, it can just have such wide reaching effects. So that's my concern for like the short term, for more the medium term, really it's like, starvation or just lack of the proper nutrients worldwide. Uh, I mean, I saw one stat that said that by the year 2027, which is pretty close, not that far away, we will be short 220 trillion calories per year. So that's that would amount to 379 billion Big Macs. It just so you can put it into like a food term Yeah, that we will not have enough of. And that is going to result in geopolitical issues like, you know, Africa and South America could be seriously exploited by countries that are going to have a food shortage, like China, for instance. Mm -hmm. And other countries like America are just going to continue to have all of these health problems. Like 70% of Americans uh, are obese or overweight, 70% which is pretty ridiculous. One in three Americans born after the year 2000 have early onset diabetes. And for lower income, it's one in two. Half of people lower income in America, kids get early onset diabetes. So when you think about the future of like the health of America, and then you combine that with the costs of healthcare and how broken our healthcare system is, And then you combine that with the environmental effects of climate change, you know, and the soil getting stripped away and erosion and desertification like the Dust Bowl. And then you combine that with automation and a lot of the jobs and income being taken away from the lower lower uh, tier workers. It could just be a really terrible state of affairs for, you know, the next few generations of Americans and. Mm -hmm unless we have a more sustainable way of bringing real food to everyone. So it's not just the upper class that can get like real high quality nutrient dense food. And we don't have the same incentive problem where it's cheaper and easier and makes more sense to go through a McDonald's drive through than it does to pick up some, you know, fresh veggies at the, at the market, then mm-hmm. we're not going to solve this problem. So, so that's, I think that, that pretty much sums up my worst, worst case scenario. It's health, it's environmental, it's geopolitical, and in mm-hmm. the worst case, it's you know, full-on starvation. Yeah, and one, one more thing I'll add to the worst case is in a lot of other episodes, worst case scenarios are bad for sure. But in this worst case scenario, a lot, like a huge portion of the world's population dies like it's it's a it's mass starvation it's i mean it's bad and they're not going to just go down without a fight like it's going to lead to conflict i mean if india is short on food and pakistan has some food they might go invade pakistan same thing with Mm -hmm. like the how china and africa are interwoven so and you know once you get nuclear powers involved then you know it can pull us into a world war i mean it's it's scary stuff yeah yeah well maybe on that note we touch (laughs) touch the best case so what do you think about it 
Best case scenario. My best case scenario is pretty nice. So okay. I can envision a near future scenario where it's actually cool to be a farmer again. And we're kind of already seeing this a little bit. Like there's this movie my mom loves called Big Little Farm. And she always talks about this family, the five Marys of this like dad and his daughters and wife who created their own farm and they do everything organically. And I think that's one of the rosier pictures of the future because when you think about automation and how a lot of the quote unquote bullshit jobs that people do today are probably gonna you know be transitioned out in the next decade it may be more attractive for people to live in a more you know area where they can be one with nature and they have their plot of land and you can be outdoors you can work with animals and the beauty is we have much better technology now where you don't have to do as much of the mundane, repetitive, um, you know, backbreaking labor that farmers used to have to do in the past. So, you know, vertical farming is obviously the easiest uh, of all. And there are actually food computers that I saw through this other TED talk where you basically have like a computer set up and you have all your different things grown and it'll literally tell you the exact date where you have the optimal ripeness, nutrient density and flavor and you harvest on that day and it's just perfect. And you can actually share data across this whole network of people who have these food computers to compare like what are the optimal parameters to get this right. So on that level, Anyone who has some means and a little bit of technical know-how can have fresh food growing in their garage, like no problem. And on a, like a larger scale, if you want to actually make this like your, your little small business, you could have a little bigger area, maybe not all of it's computer generated, but you still have, you know, drones watering the plants and some automated mm -hmm. mechanisms. But I could see a scenario where it's cool to be a farmer. It's fun to be a farmer. And these little farms start popping up across the country and the farm to table movement just gets more and more momentum. People love the health aspects. They love the, the environmental aspects. They love the flavor of it. Chefs love it. And it, we're going to have to do something like that because the average farmer is in their 60s at least. And the average farmer in Iowa is over 77 years old like wow super old Jeez. so we're gonna need some young farmers and it kind of seems like right now either you know the monsanto model of of agriculture is farmers basically no longer exist there are hired hands that do like one repetitive motion over and over but they're not really farmers like they have no control over the whole process so that model is going to be terrible. But if we move to a model where farmers actually do have some control and they have some pride and they can work with, with the animals and you know, I think that is a best case scenario from all aspects, environmental, mm. uh, just quality of life for the farmers, the quality of the food, the health, the environmental impact. And rather than just pouring fertilizers and chemicals all over it, you can do what's called precision fertilizer, where you actually inject the precise amount that's needed into the crops. 
and yeah. you don't till the soil to disrupt it, but you have animals dropping manure and whatever, so it's naturally fertilized. And mm -hmm. by doing that, there's no runoff that creates red tides. So when you're surfing, you get like dead fish and like coming yeah. out of there. And so, yeah, that's my best case scenario is sort of like being a farmer is cool again. And there's like little local farms all over the place. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. Um, my best case is pretty similar. So what I would like to, I would like to see farms look different. I do agree that it would be better if we had smaller farms popping up all over the place and they can maybe specialize in different things. But I would, I would also in the best case change the face of what a farm is. And the face of that farm is more along the lines of a food forest where we have forests everywhere. So instead of driving through Iowa and it's just like grassland and corn, we see farms that are literally forests. So you don't even really know what's growing in there. You could see that there's like walnuts. There's maybe there's a little bit of corn, maybe there's potatoes, but but when you have this whole forest and this whole system, it can replenish like the very foundation of mm -hmm. biology, like the very um, beginnings of the food chain, like the insects and everything just works. We don't need all the pesticides. We don't even necessarily need the because we're working with the whole earth system and I just I would see a scenario where we can move towards that rather than this like monoculture where we just have one crop being farmed for the yeah. you know, for thousands of acres that's interesting when you were saying talking about that it made me think of how AI design is so different from human design like when we talked about aviation, we talked about how when an AI designs the optimal airplane or like the optimal skyscraper, it looks very different mm -hmm. than what a human would create. It has this more like a, you know, amorphic sort of like yeah. it's super light and and well structured, whereas the human way is like, oh, make a cube, like make it an exact square or like make it a circle. And it's like mm -hmm. very simplistic, like trying to control the land. But maybe we can employ like algorithms to say like, hey, maximize for, you know, food output of the highest quality. And it may have a really interesting like interwoven farm where there's like, you know, oak trees over here and then there's flowers here and the mm -hmm. animals go, and it's in a way that a human would never even think to design it. Yeah. And the cool thing about this, and again, I'm going to harp on the, the permaculture thing. It, it is kind of like that. You don't just have crops necessarily. You have everything that works with the crops to, I mean, ultimately it will produce the highest yield of crops, but you need other things. It's just going to have this insane biological diversity and density mm -hmm. that typically doesn't happen on a traditional farm. So you could have, you have trees, you have vines, you have plants, you have roots. And the nice thing about some of this, um, these perennial plants is you don't have to replant them every year. They just stay around and they fruit right. one or two times. And that reduces the amount of input necessary and I've been reading a book called uh, Restoration Agriculture, oh, where basically, yeah, basically, if you set up a farm like this, right, like a food forest correctly, 
you could leave that food forest for 10 years come back, maybe prune a couple of branches from trees, maybe stomp down some of the uh, weedy grasses, and then be fine. And if you do that on a, if you tried to leave a regular farm for 10 years and come back, it would just be overgrown and you wouldn't be able to do anything with it. You'd have to totally uproot everything and replant all of the crops. Whereas with with these perennial food forests, the crops are just going to keep coming back year after year and you don't even have to think about it. So it reduces the human aspect of it. Yeah. Um, so we wouldn't even need that many um, people. And this is this is one of those things where I'm like, you know, I kind of want to set up a food forest. Yeah. Like if I had a big <laughs> plot of land somewhere, you know, this would be pretty cool to just walk out into the backyard and pick some uh, blackberries. Like that's one of the things in Tennessee right now like we had a so much rain this spring, blackberries are just everywhere in the forest. So you can just go pick wild blackberries, and there's something particularly satisfying about that. Yeah. And it would almost be like that, um, but if we had that everywhere in the world, where people could just kind of walk somewhere and pick food, and we just kind of, I mean, we could almost redesign forests to still be biologically diverse, but have a whole bunch of food being produced for us where there's just like there's no shortage of food like we can we can get to a point where that's possible um and if we need these annual plants like corn maybe we use the vertical farms in cities to do that rather than just giant swaths of land um and deforestation and all that it's funny like so many of our best case scenarios are like recreating the garden of eden where you're everyone's just like frolicking around like picking <laughs> berries but you also have like a high-tech like invisible jetpack that you can like get around more easily <laughs> and it's like just like weaving technology into nature rather uh, than the the alternative yeah so yeah I, w- I would love to live in that world mm-hmm. so yeah let's bring it home so what is the most likely scenario in your mind most likely scenario. Oh, so I'm slightly pessimistic about the likely scenario. Yeah. I think I think the way things are currently going, there will be some sort of food crisis. I don't know when that food crisis will be. It might be. 2027 it might be 2050 i don't know Mm. i think it could happen in our lifetimes and i think it's possible that it happens in our lifetimes and when that happens we're going to see these big geopolitical problems arise we're going to see wars over resources because it is becoming it'll become more and more scarce to have soil Mm -hmm. that is actually fertile in the short term yes we can create fertile soil but it isn't something that we just make an innovation and boom, we have in a, we have fertile right. soil. It takes time to build this um, this topsoil, and yeah, I think I think we're gonna see these food crisis, crises and population human populations. I think will probably dwindle. I don't think it'll be easy to sustain 10 billion people, and I think that 
there will be a minor collapse in the human population at some point. Maybe that's beyond our lifetime. Maybe in our lifetime, we only see the geopolitical aspect of it. But right. beyond that, I think there's probably going to be a big decline. However, I think after that, there, if you know, the human race is still, you know, Going around strong. after yeah and we we have we didn't resort to nuclear weapons and all of that terrible stuff then i think there will be a rebound and i think people will approach in a much uh, approach agriculture in a much smarter way and maybe we do see something more like the best case scenario but i i yeah. think this is such a a bipolar and, and such an extreme um topic that we're going to see our worst case and then we'll probably see our best case yeah yeah that's similar to my most likely i would say that with the upper class the trends are already looking pretty positive i mean there are companies like grow companies like the bowery companies like next door which was founded by kimball musk uh, elon's brother mm -hmm. And these companies are all focused on the same solution, which is locally grown, nutrient dense, sustainably produced farm to table food that is very healthy and good for the planet. So that's going to continue. The big question mark is what's going to happen to the rest of the population? Will real food be accessible and affordable to people who don't have that much extra money in their wallet. And that I also think is the signs are not looking too good for that. And there it doesn't seem like Monsanto's going away anytime soon or Tyson or it doesn't look like the, e the EPA or the FDA or the <laughs> USDA are doing really anything to help the problem in the near term. Yeah. We have at least till 2020 until they turn yeah. around, probably. So, I, yeah, unfortunately, I think it is going to be fairly rough. And I think we are going to see some more outbreaks of E. coli and, and other types of bacterias. Hopefully, there's not some like major superbug that is super catastrophic. It's hard to say whether that's more or less likely. But mm -hmm. I think you're right that there are going to be some serious food shortages in certain parts of the world and for certain tiers of society. And I think we will eventually transition to the point of sustainability, permaculture, terraculture, vertical, vertical farming, all of mm -hmm. that. But it's probably going to take a catastrophe for us to realize how important it is that we make that transition. And mm -hmm. I hope that we don't do too much additional deforestation and lose that much additional biodiversity before we mm -hmm. achieve that realization on a global scale. And right. the final thing I'll say on this topic is that we need to start thinking about agriculture from a global perspective, not from a nation by nation perspective, because certain crops are much better grown in certain parts of the world. And we really need to be thinking about growing food for everyone and having quality food and thinking about how climate change impacts on a global scale, not just how it impacts your specific country. And so many of the problems around this can only be solved by working together with different countries and 
with the big companies involved and continuing to innovate on science and continuing to, you know, mimic what Mother Earth has already figured out because oftentimes that's the best course for us to take. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful in the very, very long term, but it, it may be quite rough in the medium long term. Yeah, and the problem is kind of like you've been talking about is it will hit the lower classes first. It'll hit the poor yeah. first. And so if you're listening to this, buy grass-fed beef. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's a couple bucks more, it could save your life. You could get an E. coli infection if you have beef that has been fed corn its entire existence. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many things that that could be done. And the issue though is, I mean, grass fed beef right now is more expensive, but I guess, you know, you vote with your dollar. If there's right. a, there's a higher demand for uh, sustainably produced food, then, you know, yeah. there's going to be a higher supply to match that. I think that's the biggest lesson. It's that the consumers really wield the most power, even though it doesn't seem like it. And Walmart has made this crystal clear where they are now moving towards more organic food because demand has led them there. People demand yeah. better quality food. And so the biggest one of the biggest players is moving in that direction. So if we can continue pushing demand in the right direction, then the supply will follow. I've been super impressed with Walmart's um, offerings for organic stuff recently. Like just yeah. in the past couple of years, it's unreal. I feel like sometimes it's not that much different than walking through a, a healthier store, like maybe not Whole Foods level, but still, still really good. Not something yeah. that I would have expected from Walmart 10 years ago. So there's, there's definitely positive um, momentum. We just need to make sure that we can keep that positive momentum going before we hit the point of catastrophe right we're all gathered here today to talk about yeah very well i think that's a good place to end it thank you everyone for listening this has been the future of agriculture what is currently happening and we'll see you next time and what will inevitably happen the past the present and the future Hey futurists, if you've made it this far, you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. 
It was created by the Walden Brothers, and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden Brothers also produced the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.